what is Engage trying to do? It's trying to help... Uh, it, it works on the conviction that um, Jesus transforms all of life and that would have to include the way you work as well. So we want to help South Australian Christians uh, think about how their faith and their work connect together and hence that's why the logo has the connection of the two things, um, our faith and our work coming together. Um, here are some examples of workers. Well, I do have it down now, but it's not. Should I, oh, back. There we go. Here's some examples of workers. Just in case you thought that all we're interested in is people in offices in the city, um, we actually are for work, whatever that form takes um, in, our, in our community and in, in South Australia. So whether it's paid, volunteered, um, whether it's, you know, retiree, full-time carer, we want to help you connect what you're doing with your life, your tasks, with your faith. How do we do that? Whoops, I'm very quick off this. We try and support Christians to create deep connections. And we do that first and foremost by ask, inviting Christians to pray for their work with other Christians in the workplace. And it could be the same industry, it could be the same geographical location, it could be um, the occupation that you're in or that the time of the day might suit you the best. But basically we've got 25 of these teams that meet across South Australia, regionally and uh, around wider Adelaide. And they work on the principle from Paul in Colossians um, to talk to God about people before you try and talk to people about God. It's a really important principle in chapter 4 in Colossians, where he invites the church to talk to God about the people he's trying to reach before he tries to reach those people. Um, we equip Christians um, and try and help them for, uh, to, to engage in a cross-cultural mission because workplaces nowadays are a long, long way away from um, where they might have been even 20 years ago, and they do not resemble in any shape or form the Christian world that you might know here at uh, City Rich Marion. So um, we do a thing called the E, which hopefully sometime this year we might be able to do some of the training of that in. It's almost like doing missionary training, I think, is the best way to describe it. Um, we provide events and resources... And so we've got a website with um, a resource library on it and uh, we, we just want to try and help you in whatever way we can to navigate that workspace in a positive way and to the honour of Jesus. Um, as a church, along with many other South Australian churches, you've been partners with us for the last four years that we've existed and how that partnership expresses itself is with something like this, with you inviting me in. Uh, to uh, speak, but also you've had Darren Weston, who's been uh, a member and a staff member here at City Ridge uh, Marin, but also working with us a couple of days a week, and uh, that's been a wonderful uh, partnership of sharing um, a great person there. Um, and you've got people who are involved in the prayer groups uh, in the congregation, and I know that you pray for the ministry of Engage and are interested in its development and future. Um, we've got a training event coming up called Reframe 
Uh, we do it every year, but this time it's called Reframe Identity. Fantastic speaker from the Centre for Public Christianity, Max Jaganathan. Um, one, it's one thing to enjoy your job and to think about how you can make a contribution. It's another thing for that job to turn into who you are and become your um, whole focus and identity. And lots of people are caught up in that in workplaces, and this is a bit of a correction uh, this morning uh, with Max, and so that you know who you are and your Christian foundation is the basis on which you bring your confident self to work. Um, if you've got an issue or if you want to look at something, go and check out our library online at engageworkfaith.org.au because there might be something there that will help you. Um, so, for example, it might look something like this. Uh, you'll find a few articles and you can click on those and see where there's anything that might be useful. I use it a lot when I'm in conversations with people over a coffee and then I come out and think, I wonder whether there's anything I could follow up with that might be useful to them. And that website works for Christians or people who are curious. Um, it's, it's been written in such a way that it's not in-house, if you can understand what I mean. Um, there's a QR code, as Mandy mentioned, on the door there and on the way out on the coffee machine and so on. If you're interested in this ministry and you'd like to get our newsletters, I can promise you now that the newsletters are designed, we always go through them and say, is there helpful stuff here for people or is this just a rant about what we're doing? So there are some things that we'll tell you about, but we're always aiming to try and help and resource Christians. So um, feel free to go on the QR code. Um, there's a copy of our annual report that Darren Weston did most of the design work for, which you can see on the uh, table on the way out. And there's a copy of that identity uh, training event if you'd like to come to that on Feb 17th. Okay, well, let's have a look at work together. Over the next few weeks, um, we're going to look at work and rest. And today is mainly work, although we won't understand work without a little bit of conversation about rest. So, to kick off, let me ask you a question. Who shaped your view of work? Because I bet you've got one, and it's come from somewhere along the way. Who shaped and influenced your view of work? In my case, I grew up in a working-class family uh, where my father was a foreman at Coca-Cola and my mother worked as the deli manager at Woolies. And when they got home from their physically demanding jobs, they went to work at home, sweeping, cleaning, painting, mowing, um, making the house look spick and span, cooking. So to stop and rest in our family was an absolute crime. It was unthinkable that the children in that family would not be doing things. Um, if you lay down in the middle of the day to have a bit of a rest, well, they'd call an ambulance, you know. I, it was, what are you doing lying down? It's daytime. So um, who or what has prepared you and shaped you for your understanding of work? Who did you learn it from? Did you learn it from your parents like me? Did you learn it from your first workplace that you went to? Did you learn it from an inspiring teacher that you might have had along the way? You've got one. You just need to work out where you've got it from. Daniel Doriani, in his book, 
work its purpose, dignity and uh, transformation. He has this great definition he picked up from David Miller about work, which says, work is not merely about making a living while avoiding sin. It's about extending the kingdom rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just merely making a living and trying to you know, navigate around sinful behaviour around you. It's about extending the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. Very, very positive definition of work. Our approach to work is unwittingly shaped uh, when we go to it by our upbringing, our work culture, our wider Western society, more so than it is from the Word of God, I suspect. And if you're exploring the Christian faith this morning and you're here checking out City Ridge Marion, then you probably heard everybody else's take on work, so why not listen to what God thinks work is for and why he's put it there? Maybe it could help uh, shape your view of work. And if you're a Christian here today, this is one of your greatest points of difference to the people that you work with day after day. So listen up today so that you can make a difference tomorrow when you go to work. So to do this, we have to start at the end. The final picture of the Bible is not dissimilar to uh, what most human beings are striving for throughout their work life, and that is to get a rest. Rest from your labour. A mate of mine bought a house on the York Peninsula with some money he got when his father-in-law died. And every weekend, Friday nights, he would pack that car with fishing rods, the dog, his family, and they headed off to what he used to say to me was paradise. And that was going really well for a very short period of time. And then his wife contracted an aggressive sort of cancer and within months she had died. As I was heartbreaking to watch as he sold that place over at York Peninsula because it was no longer a place that he wanted to go. It was no longer rest. God's picture of rest actually eclipses what we often settle for. C.S. Lewis once said, we're like children who are content to make mud pies by, in our backyard when we've been offered a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We're not hard to please. We're far too easily pleased with what we have in front of us. So that great longing that's inside of you for, um, you know, sailing the Great Barrier Reef or living off the grid or going through your bucket list of all the golf courses that you want to work through, whatever that is while everybody else is in the bullpen, that's just an echo of what God is holding out for you. He's put it in your DNA, that longing, that desire for rest. And often what we've settled for is a shriveled up view of rest. How so? Well, you have to go back to the beginning. And that's what we looked at in that first uh, Bible uh, Excerpt. So in the opening book of the Bible, we meet God and we find out he's a worker. And 35 times in the chapter, the first chapter, God is working and he's creating and he's making our world. And then in chapter 2, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, 
And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, I want you to reflect on how radical this picture of God is compared to what else was around at the time in the ancient Near East. This is a God who works. Most of the gods in the ancient Near East were resting and getting human beings to do everything for them. Particularly manual work was a really negative concept in that period when the Bible was formed and, and uh, the creation stories were put together. One, uh, the Babylonian creation story, for example, there's essentially a war going on between the gods, and in that process, the world gets made. But when it's done, somebody has to do the tiresome task of keeping the world going. So the lead god says, oh, well, I'm going to make a lowly creature who's going to look after this for us. And then we can just lie around and eat grapes while they do the work for us. Human beings in that story are the equivalent of slaves. You go to the Greek mythology and you've got that story of Pandora's box. You, you may have heard of Pandora's box, but you may not know the story. But basically what happens is Zeus gives Pandora, who he created as the first woman, he gives her a box and he says, you can have it on one condition, you mustn't open it. Well, you know, you know what's going to happen. She isn't supposed to open it, but curiosity gets the better of her. And out comes, what do you think comes out of that? Death, decay, and what else? What do you reckon? Work. Work comes out of it. Work is as good as having death and decay in the picture, according to Greek mythology. Now, if the ancient world thought work, work was a curse, just walk out there in 2024 and see whether you find other people who agree with that. Yet Genesis flies in the face of what many think about work. God makes us from the earth. He, you, you get to see God with dirt under his fingernails, God digging and planting trees and making this world and getting his hands dirty. And it's good. It's pronounced as good. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that work has dignity. Even the most menial tasks that we have to do, even if you're doing things voluntarily and not getting paid a reward for them, as his image bearers, God creates us to work and cultivate and keep and steward and fill this world. Work can be an absolute blessing. You think of that paramedic who's been trained to pick you up in the middle of a car trauma accident. You think about the person who you go and take your shoebox full of you know, tax receipts to and say, I don't know how to work out my tax return this year. And they just bring order out of that chaos for you. See, work is actually good. We're here to steward it and collaborate with God and reflect our creator. But of course, that is only half the story because work is also a good thing that's gone wrong. And so after the first human beings uh, disobey God in the garden by eating from the one tree they're told not to, we get what the unravelling impact of that is in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. 
You'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You'll eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return to. Now, I don't know whether you noticed there, but what's significant, significant, I think, is five times in three sentences the word eating is mentioned. Eating is the way that sin enters human life, and now the curse comes in eating. The punishment is the eating, in the eating. What's, what was once provided for now has to be gained through a lot of sweat, a lot of toil and a lot of struggle. And that frustration of providing food for the table is something I'm sure you've experienced yourself at some point. We're out of sync and every time we try and do something and it doesn't work when it comes to our work, it is a reminder of that faithful first act, disobedient act of eating. Our world doesn't work properly anymore. We can't even work it properly anymore, no matter how many solutions we come up with. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, our phone line went dead. And um, that meant that the internet went dead. And this little bunny trying to run a ministry from home was starting to get a bit panicky about the whole thing. So, of course, I waited in the phone queue to the call centre and I secured the visit of a te technician. And when they come, you know, you sort of treat them like they're a saviour. We hope you can fix this for us. He came out, he looks around, he goes, hmm, yeah. Well, unfortunately, there's a line under there and there's a tree root playing around with it and it's messing things up. And... Um, there's only one house connected to that line, and that's you. I don't think we'll be able to fix that. So I look longingly at him, and then he gets optimistic, and he says, hang on, the MBN are coming. You'll be able to shift over to that very soon. So he walks out of my life, I walk into home, and I ring up the MBN. And by this time... You know, I'm, I'm wondering how it's going to work. MBN says, we're really angry about that response because we're not coming to you until December 31. It was August. So I was thinking, Happy New Year from Telstra. I rang my provider's call centre again. This time I was deliriously singing along to the music, the waiting music that they have, because I knew it so well. Finally, two days later, they sent out one more technician. The technician comes out, he has a look, he restored the phone line and he was really frustrated with the previous technician because he said, that guy came out and saw you, they get paid for the number of jobs that they turn up to, not the number of jobs they fix. So I counted that. That's five different sets of people frustrated with their jobs in that one request over that phone line going down. What's been frustrating you about your work? I bet you you've been frustrated with your work at some point in a world that's fallen. The writer of Ecclesiastes captures something of this, when of the thistles and the thorns that we have to put up with. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he's a wise man or a fool? 
Yet he'll have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort while under the sun. We often work so hard and then we see those efforts go down the drain. Think for a minute about the simple act of cleaning. Wiping the benches, dusting the furniture, vacuuming, um, cleaning the carpet, washing the stains off the clothes, um, scrubbing the bathroom, and we do it all over again and again and again. And then ironically, we end our lives covered in six feet of the stuff. Isn't that cruel? <laughs> all that cleaning. Work is cruelly ironic. And so no wonder we gravitate to one of two extremes. Either we become workaholics and we think, oh, I'm going to get on top of this. I am going to make this work. And then we devote our lives and our whole significance is tied up in our work. Or we get lazy and we say, I'm going to shortcut here. I'm going to find my way out of this. I'm going to skip this because it's too hard. Which do you lean towards? Are you an overworker? Are you an underworker? But I tell you what, both of those are frustrated responses to work in a world that doesn't work properly. So in summary, what, what has God said? He said, work is great. It's good. It started that way. We're designed to work. But work is also painful and it's frustrating because we're dislocated from God and we're dislocated from the world. And that's why the person who's made redundant one month could come to you and say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Now I've lost my job. And then they land a dream job about a month later and then they're going, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this job. You know, They just swing from one to the other. That's our lives. So what's God going to do about a dilemma like that? Well, he sends Jesus to work. He sends Jesus to work. What was Jesus' work, you ask? Well, it wasn't just carpentry. Basically, listen to Jesus' words here. Jesus at one point, is a, he responds and he says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And the background to this comment is that Jesus has just healed a guy on the Sabbath day, which the Sabbath day, if you know, is a code word for a rest day. So he's copying criticism for this um, healing and yet, what is his work? Well, in essence, his work is to heal. It's to restore. It's to recreate and put things back together the way they were supposed to be. And in this case, it was an invalid that had been impacted by the fall. If you think about it, that's what the rest day is all about. The rest day is about bringing people back and restoring them. And so Jesus' goal in all his work is to get us back to life in paradise. So... He works to purchase people back to their creator from whom they're now estranged. That's what we just celebrated when we had communion. That gives people true rest. At another point in John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And my food there is like my job, my, what, makes me, what makes me operate and function. It's his great work. What makes me think that Jesus dying on the cross is that work? Because the final words that Jesus utters at the cross is, 
it is finished. I came to finish the work. And I think this is more than just the horrific act of dying an executioner's death. What Jesus is talking about when he finishes that work at the cross is the great grand task of reversing the fall of creation. And that's why the ministry of Jesus is referred to in a theological term as the work of Christ. The work of Christ. It's his work. You think you have a lot to do with your day. But what Jesus did was the ultimate hard work to secure the ultimate rest for humanity. He went through the ultimate hard work so that he could secure the ultimate rest for you and I. How do you know if it worked? It'd have to start reversing the effects of the fall itself. And if there's anything that makes a mockery of your work, it's death itself. Jesus' resurrection tackles that head on and it's more than a party trick. It's the surest sign that Christ's work actually did work, that it was successful. It's the forerunner of many resurrections to come. Do you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the disciples aside and he said this to them, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What's the effect when someone preps before you turn up as a guest? Well, you know, a a fire lit in the hearth for you or, you know, a chocolate on your pillow or the bed turned down or flowers or a homemade bowl of soup. What it says is, we value you. We're investing in you. That's what preparing ahead is about. Of all the pictures you could paint to depict heaven, the dominating one in the Bible is a picture of rest. What does God do after creating the world? He rests. What's lost at Genesis 3? Rest. What has eluded people ever since that day? Rest. What does Jesus hold out to weary workers? Well, he says, Come to me, all who are tired and heavy laden, and I will give you a few more jobs. He says, I'll give you rest. It's our great human longing. If you don't believe me, Take another look at work at the person who is going around with a spring in their step, humming you know, quietly to themselves because they're going on holidays next week. See, but rest is much more than the absence of work. I mean, you can go and lie on a beach at Port Elliot over the holidays and you can be about as restful as a dog with fleas. Completely at disease with yourself, with others, unable to enjoy it. Real rest is to be reconciled to yourself, to the people around you, and to God, your creator. According to God, rest is being at peace 
with his son Jesus. So that's the ultimate in delayed gratification. It's your super on steroids, really. Jesus is invested in a great work of people being reconciled to God. And when Christians line up with that and see that as part of their work too, they are prepared to talk about things that might get them into trouble or unpopular with people in their workplace. Why? Because they know this is indispensable to real life. Made for work, work's gone wrong, Christ's mighty work secures our rest. So what is this rest that he holds out for us? How does work fit into heaven? And I have to say, this is where Christians often diverge a bit. When we start talking about heaven, there's a lot, of, a lot of opinions about this. But one of the basic principles, I think, is there's continuity and discontinuity when we get to heaven. Some things in this world pass through into the next and other things don't. So, for example, um, marriage. We know from what Jesus said that marriage is right there at the beginning of creation, but it doesn't go through into heaven. It stops in this world. It's superseded. Now, given Revelation's description of the new world, if you read the book of Revelation, you probably conclude that some work no longer needs to happen. Doctors, uh, lawyers, um, wedding planners, and evangelists. <laughs> so, to try and predict the elements in more detail, I think, is difficult and could probably occupy you until Jesus returns. So, let me just give you a couple of thoughts about this. The first is that will still work when we go to heaven. And if you have a look at Revelation 22 there, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And here's the bit. And his servants will serve him. That word serve there is much, much wider than just praising God, although that's important. What it is, is it's the idea of bringing everything up to God, your whole self, in that process. It appears that there'll be work to do in heaven. So if you're worried and you're sort of not thrilled at the thought of floating around in a disembodied state and just singing for the rest of your life, then let me encourage you, in eternity, it seems that you will be able to do things that will praise God to do with your work. Secondly, some of the work that we do here makes it through into the next world. So the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into heaven. So it appears that some things will make it that we're doing now. Heaven is also a place of rest. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for they shall rest, rest from their labours. And that word labours there is a Greek word that emphasises all the negative aspects of work. All the struggle, all the toil, all the frustration. In heaven, the tension between doing deep work, which absorbs you, and you think, oh, how did that time go past? It was just so enjoyable getting that done. That satisfaction that you have with your work compared to the work that wears you down to the bone, that'll get resolved. That'll no longer be there, that tension. Work is not the opposite of rest. 
Imagine all the things you love about your work, the satisfaction, the sense of achievement, the progress, the benefits that it might bring to others, but without all the confusion and the miscommunication and the annoyance and the angst and the gremlins. That'll be gone. So the chorus in heaven will be, thank God it's Monday, not thank God it's Friday. Jesus declared in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is linking some motivations here for why we work. You know, putting bread on the table. And he's making a direct line to himself here of what life's like in a fallen world that will get sustained by his bread and his living water. We're constantly trying to put that bread on the table. Jesus says, ultimately, what you're working for is found in me. I am the solution to your hunger and thirst. And those longings that we have will be satisfied in the veritable orchard of God's paradise, not a patch on what we left behind in Eden. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are surrounded by a world of rushing people, maybe not in January, but they will start to build up the momentum again within the next few weeks. And they are labouring hard to secure a fool's paradise. Nothing they work for in this world satisfies their deepest longings. Do you believe that? Christians can make some of the best workers in the world precisely because they are not trying to milk it for the same things that their non-Christian counterparts are. Christians can have a comprehensive and well thought out view of why they go to work. Do you? Or do you just join into the chorus and the culture? Do you share that view of work that you have as a Christian with others when they express their joy or frustration about their jobs? Because there's a great chance to go deeper. Why do you think work's so frustrating? Oh, well, you know. Why am I working? Well, you know, more than putting bread on the table. It's, Jesus says, come to me. I am the bread of life. That's what you're working to find. That's where you'll drink your fill. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you radically reshape our view of work so that it is in alignment with your great gospel and your word. Thank you so much that you are taking us somewhere with work and that we will enjoy our work so much more when we understand it 
and why it's been created and why you've created us to do it. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.